The greatness of America lies not in being more enlightened than any other nation, but rather in her ability to repair her faults. Those were the words of French philosopher Alexis de Tocqueville, who uh, spent many years studying American democracy. And uh, I'm very happy to say that uh, today's episode will be talking about the US midterms, which are coming up on the 8th of November. With us today on the Political Tipster, we've got uh, two special guests. Uh, one you'll recognise is a comforting and insightful voice from uh, Collingwood Saturday Night Spaces. It's uh, Don't Eat Pangolins. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Julian. Nice to be here. And uh, making uh, a stunning return just one week after his uh, great performance in the Brazilian elections. Associate Editor uh, Luke Perry. Yes, uh, good, good afternoon, Julian, and uh, don't you, Paglins. It's good to be back again talking about, um, well, I can build on the point I made last week of this probably being, rivaling with the French, the most important election this year across the globe, and uh, we're just ready to get into it now. So before we get into the election itself, uh, can you remind our listeners how the US democratic system works? So. What powers does the House of Representatives have? What powers does the Senate have? And what powers does the president have? So I can I can feel that. So I mean, the president. So the president is, is ostensibly the head of the executive branch of the United States government. He's in charge of appointments for all of the various agencies that sit under the federal government. Um, this would include things like the heads of the FBI, the CIA. And he is in charge ostensibly during wartime as well. Um, now, the Congress um, split between the two houses would be the legislative body of the United States. But they have theoretically the Congress is meant to approve any um, expenditure bills and the Senate is meant to uh, improve or like and to approve uh, treaty powers and is meant to give its imprimatur on anything proposed um, at the lower levels of the house. So you need both um, houses of the legislature in order to pass any legislation. And so like there are some more arcane methods where you can do this with a bare majority, but you know, I'm sure we've all maybe heard of some things like uh, Senate filibustering. Um, so for certain bills in the United States Senate, you have to reach a 60 or 60 seat out of 100 to pass a bill with um out like that would be what you would call a filibuster proof majority um otherwise you can pass bills under what's known as reconciliation which is where you are allowed to pass something i think once per year in each house on a budgetary matter but those would be the main powers of the like if you if you wanted to lay it down the president is in charge of making sure that the executive bodies act in accordance with him as chief officer of the u.s executive the Senate is the more distinguished upper house somewhat, although, you know, not really like the UK House of Lords because it can actually stop legislation. And the Congress is uh, your bread and butter legislative body where most legislation gets, uh, gets started. And that's where all spending bills have to theoretically come from. And just to remind our listeners, uh, I'm right in saying that uh... The every seat in the House of Representatives is up for election every two years. 
Correct. Whereas the Senate, it's a third of seats up for election every two years. So the way it works is when you win a Senate seat, you will get your seat for six years. Um, but they run on a rolling basis, like you said, 33 seats every two years. So at, at any given midterm or presidential election, there will be 33 seats up for grabs in a midterm election. Now that can favor some parties much more than others as a lot of vulnerable seats might come up once or you know it might just be fairly inconsequential but this one this time is a bit of a mixed bag for both parties i would say because there's a lot of what you would call weak seats on either side or questionable seats on either side that are having to be contested quite hotly and luke uh what is the significance of these midterms what how could it change the uh, American landscape? Well, the, the midterms are particularly the, uh, the the first round of midterms for a, a president in their first term is a referendum on the the one hundred days, so to speak, or you know, the, the year and a half le leading up to um, the term of office. And uh, if you look at back at previous times when um, major legislation has passed and the voters have been unhappy the uh, the president enters a uh, a standoff with a um a congress or a senate that's now controlled by the opposition for example when 2010 obamacare had just passed that um upset a lot of americans and uh, the republicans quickly took back control of both of i think they took back control of the house that's yeah. when newt gingrich newt gingrich came speaker and then they took back the senate uh, four more years later i think and um, but in times of a sort of great unity, uh, the president can often do very well, such as in 2002, after the aftermath of 9-11, when Bush um, was able to get, remain on good terms with the House and the Senate, of course, as the Republicans were returned. But the significance of this now in a time of, of sort of heightened polarisation, it's guaranteed to... Uh, certainly severely weak the Biden administrations I know we're going on to predictions already but in times of crisis like these the midterms just serve as a reminder that the voters are there they are watching they are seeing their lives being transformed by this presidency and this is an opportunity to um just either stick two fingers up at the administration or uh, just help them on their legislative agenda Current polling suggests that uh, although the Senate is, is a very tight race, it it's looking likely that Republicans will take back both houses. How will that change uh, the way Biden has been running the country so far? Well, that really does depend because there have been some presidents who have been able to tack to what you would call more inverted commas centrist position and been able to build what you uh, you know a, a, cons a rule by consensus where they will get some of the opposing parties join with their party to pass legislation i think as luke alluded to at a time of what is very heightened polarization in the united states i think the prospects of um consensus style clintonian governance is fairly negligible. You might find that there would be some cross the aisle issues that they might agree on. I'm thinking that you might get a few senators that would sign on for spending bills for Ukraine or something like that. Um, mm. Maybe some more 
bread and butter or you know what they call pork barrel politics you know infrastructure spending with the appropriate graft thrown in for various senators and congressmen that usually gets some gets some eyes in the house or the senate but i think what the effect will be if he loses let's take each houses together if he loses the house his legislative agenda is pretty much dead it's finished he will not have any other significant legislation passed during this presidential um, this presidential term. Um, this has been this was true of Trump. This was true of Obama. It's, you know, like you've seen this before. When they lose it, they they they'll they will have less legislation as their agenda. If he loses the Senate, um, well, then the more concerning thing, I think, would be for from a Democrat point of view, would be that the ability to get Supreme Court justices mm. or judicial appointments <clears throat> appointed is, if not completely done, uh, much, much more difficult. Like you can't rely on splitter votes from, say, Mitt Romney to carry you to 51 for any United States or U.S. Supreme Court uh, nominees, if any of them do arise. Um, so that means that any chance of Biden really taking um, or like, making any amendments to the current political composition of the Supreme Court is done. And I think from a practical perspective, if you look at the House, what the House has done and did quite effectively, um, you might say, with um, et putting ethics aside, the House was able to make the last couple of years of Donald Trump's presidency quite difficult. Uh, continues to do so with things like um, uh, what you know these house committees you know like the January 6th committee that was mm. sitting you had the impeachment proceedings that were fostered so if though if 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 the Democrats lose the house um, as much as Trump was in danger of those type of proceedings going on in the house Biden is now in danger of it um, and I think we can both probably we can all probably think of a few places where uh, a particularly angry GOP might take aim, you know, certain man's laptop, for example, might become a matter of uh, committee proceedings. I, 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 think, I, can... I, I think the GOP have a, a pork barrel buffet should they retake the, the House of Representatives. There's also what the House of Representatives is. They're always in election mode. Of course, they're all up for every two years. Yeah. And uh, the, the next, of course, the time they're up for election after this month, will be when there's a presidential election. And so uh, as soon as, you know, the card falls for this year, they're going to straight straight in with the COVID inquiries. Fauci's going to be subpoenaed back. I, I, I can perfectly see that. And um, they, they're going to take it in a, a partisan manner, of course, that this is politics. But yeah. in the back of their minds, as soon as they sit down again after the people have voted, OK, how do I get re-elected when these issues are more pertinent in their mind, in the voters' mind because the, the president is up. The, the Senate, uh, I think, it, uh, it boils down to a numbers game, really. Uh, if Biden loses heavily, that's it. Because you yeah. can't rely on the, on the Susan Collinses and, and the Joe Manchins to carry the day for you anymore. You, no amount of bribes or arm twists will, um, will get his agenda anywhere because no. it's just that, I, this I is that political divide. So let's uh, move on to the election itself, uh, or elections, I should say. So what are some of the more important issues that are being raised? Obviously, number one is the economy. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you wanted to take, I think, 
Right. So the way it's being reported in a lot of the polls that I've read, uh, I've read is that there you'll get a little bit of a different answer depending on how you ask this question, because some people have the economy rolled up as one major issue. Some will split out inflation, economy, jobs, etc. So it becomes a little bit more fractious with that. But I think if you look, and I've just got a few, like I've got a few bits of polling here that I'm looking at. Um, if you look at the Gallup aggregate polls, which track this, economic problems are, cert are polling at about 38%. That's including all of the factors that go into the economy. Um, other issues, you know, you can imagine, but the economy seems at the moment to be the standout issue. And I think the problem that's really going to hit the Democrats here is that um, like if you take Biden's handling of the economy or his perceived handling of the economy, it's not good. Um, like, let me just get the figure up here. I believe I mentioned it just shortly before, but I think Biden's Biden on the economy right now is polling at 38%. So that means that 38% of the country like his handling of the economy which means that 58% don't. So you can do some mads in your head that if the most important thing is the economy and he's not trusted with it, well, then the president's going to be a big drag on any of these races where that's keenly important. Um, now, the other issues, I guess, we could touch on. Um, you know, abortion was at one point seeming like it was going to cause some issues for the Republicans, but I think that as time has gone on, it's somewhat filtered into the back, like into the rear view mirror. Um, certainly the strategy that the Democrats have had have been to focus on um, social issues. So, you know, January 6th, abortion rights and, you know, various other things like that. But I think that as we look, as we are sitting here on the precipice of the election, it's looking like that has not worked um, and the economy crime, immigration, I think they're all going to feature much more heavily than the um, than the January 6th committee, threats to democracy, et cetera, et cetera, or even abortion rights. Um, I did read somewhere quite interestingly that even abortion rights, if you take it as a headline percentage, um, may not be as good for Democrats as you might think, because we have to remember that when you ask a question like, abortion is your top priority well there's a huge proportion of the united states not a majority by any means but there's a large proportion of the united states population that might be fired up for abortion because they want to add restrictions i think i saw mm. somewhere that the enthusiasm gap for abortion is only favoring democrats by the tune of about three percent which doesn't bode well if that's what you're hanging your hat on and i think Something that should be noted as well is that uh, six states will have uh, abortion-related ballot initiatives, which is a, a record. So possibly if, if there is a referendum on, these, on this issue, then there's no point in voting for one party or another because uh, it, it's already been put to a referendum uh, yep. and they should be voting for the party for another reason. You, you can definitely imagine a situation where if, like you said, it's on the ballot, that they might put their opinion that, you know, they want to either liberalize or restrict abortion rights in their given state, but that really doesn't filter into their down ticket choices whatsoever. They might say, okay, cool, I've done that part, but mm. I would like a, I would like a Republican 
attorney general or a Republican governor or a Republican senator. You might you might find that these things don't translate very well for um, or don't translate how you think anyway. And Luke, uh, are there any other issues that uh, have been raised by the voters? Well, I just want to uh, expand on uh, the points you two have made. Now, according to Gallup, um, voters were asked uh, to, just to name their one most important decision, the economy, of course, tops that at 50%. Uh, within the, the different segments that uh, you described, Pangolins, as inflation was the 17% crux of that. So, of course, prices going high is going to make everyone poorer. Uh, the issues that also feature prominently are, are, of course, what Trump terms the American carnage of crime. And um, the, the most important social issue is, of course, abortion, but that polls very low. Uh, interestingly, considering we've lived through the last two and a half years, COVID polling at 1%. And uh, I think you mentioned before we started recording, that's the only segment of policy where Biden's actually doing favorably on but as it's such a minute percentage it's not worth caring about relations with russia is also for the american electorate slightly lower than perhaps what the, the americans the establishment in washington would um would have us believe and want only polling about you know 30 percent amongst the uh, the most important issues but what where the democrats are going to do horribly is on the issues people can see with their own eyes it's the economy People do not have to listen to CNN or MSNBC to realise that that the price for milk is going through the stratosphere. Price of uh, petrol is up way beyond affordability levels. Mm. Uh, there's rampant crime seen both in the streets and on social media. I'm sure, I mean, even across the pond, we have seen um, videos posted to Twitter of just stores in broad daylight in Los Angeles, wherever just getting mm. completely ransacked. Yeah. You, you may you may even live in a crime-free area in rural Kansas to take an example but they say you, you are concerned that um economy and crime that's when people get riled up so to speak that that's when that they they do march down to the polls so I think we will actually see a decent turnout for this midterm and, and just to touch on that point if you're looking at two issues that traditionally when they've been in distress the GOP have done well in uh crime and the economy are two things that feature frequently. Um, it's interesting that you touched on the Russia relations being quite low. Um, you know, I, I think we can probably take an analogy from our own um, from our own recently departed Al Johnson that, you know, there, there, there is an over-representation in the mind, I think, of certainly Washington insiders and um, London insiders, that there's an outsized importance in the political mind for things like um, Russia-Ukraine, but I think ultimately people care more about how much they can bring home for the groceries and whether or not their 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 streets are safe. You know, yeah, it, it's the bread and butter issues and it's the disconnect. If you're a, a secretary to a congressman, you're going to think the most important issue to all voters is January sixth abortion and Ukraine, when when really it's <laughs> the issues that keep food on the table and keep roofs overheads. Yep. Uh, what one last. Uh, another point that I wanted to make was uh, immigration as well. So we've, we've seen since the Biden administration an increase of 385% in boarding counters. Uh, and we had this pretty hilarious moment a few months back when uh, Ron DeSantis sent uh, <laughs> the migrants to uh, Martha's Vineyard and uh, NIMBY. We don't have the infrastructure to keep them here. <laughs> 
Oh, imagine only has seven bedrooms. <laughs> One of the headlines I read of Martha's Vineyard, which was definitely a gloat against the political right, the, the, the quotations just read, they enriched us for the 48 hours <laughs> they were there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny that I think immigration at the moment is not at the forefront of people's minds, but it's definitely one of these things that rumbles under the surface and then breaks out. Like, I mean, ultimately, if you look at Trump, a lot of the power behind the Trump brand and the Trump presidency, or at least the, the Trump campaign, was his opposition to immigration. So I think at the moment, it's being somewhat over... Over, like it, it, it's being somewhat overshadowed by just how bad the economy mm. is. But I definitely think that there's probably a not insubstantial portion of the United States populace that might consider <laughs> abysmally the uh, immigration statistics or the immigration uh, situation is getting. Certainly in border states, um, there might be, you know, a, there might be a five or seven percent that, you know, that's their single issue, you know. Um, in which case, if you're a if you're a blue congressman in a border district, I would be running scared at the moment. Well, there's precedent for that because uh, wasn't there a, a congressional election about a year ago in a, in a border seat? It was yeah. reliably voted Democrat two thirds and then flipped overnight to Republicans, brought solely on by the border crisis. Yes, and not only that, it flip, its flip came as a result of a mass departure of the Latino vote in that district mm. from blue to red. So the old, um, the old logic for the, 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 the Democrats being that, you know, the Latino vote would be solidly theirs um, if they were pro-open borders, um, certainly in the border states, does not seem to be holding true. And if that continues, there might be a lot of pain for them coming in places like Arizona, their remnants in Texas. I doubt there's going to be much difference in California, but you know, who knows? California is not the Latino vote that will carry it, though. No, the, the inner city white Los Angeles vote that does that. <laughs> uh, one last issue I wanted to touch upon is uh, a couple of months ago, so is the student loan forgiveness, of, uh, which Biden announced a couple of months ago. Has that played any significance uh, in these elections? Well, you might have thought it might, but I'm looking right now at um, a poll that is looking at, because if you, you, if you imagine that that would be a big boom um, for um, Democrats, um, then you'd expect to see it in how what, excited the various groups that would make up the, the constituency, big tent, um, would be showing enthusiasm. But there is actually at the moment an enthusiasm gap between um, baseline Republican and baseline Democrat. And these are registered Democrats and Republican. I'm looking at this poll right now. Republicans are 84% fired up to vote. That's their enthusiasm rating. <laughs> Democrats, 68%. That already shows that whatever you attempted to do mm. with that student loan forgiveness to drive out the uh, registered Democrats, they're not feeling the love, or they're certainly not feeling the enthusiasm to go in there and save Joe Biden. Um, and, and ultimately, if, if that was the plan, and I think there's, there's a concern, especially among you know, like 
what he did may well have been illegal or unconstitutional. So how long is it going to last if it makes it to the court? Um, especially given that the composition of the court at the moment <laughs> is not inclined to do him that many favours. Also be the case of issues like um, the, the student loan forgiveness. It's a reliably Democrat demographic anyways. And it's in absolute numbers, it's probably not a lot of people. Now, if a, a, a would-be president of any stripe would, would appeal to just say the student and say the minority vote, you wouldn't get elected because these are two small numbers. It's not saying that, that these people don't matter, but in politics, it is a numbers game. And this was where Hillary's downfall was in 2016. She appealed to the two small demographics. And that's the, yeah. that's the, what the Democrats are still cursed with. If, if we look at the wider groups that are interested in terms of, you know, who's interested in voting, let's, let's take a look at these. Baby boomers, they're very high up, ready to go. They're at 87%. Trump voters, 80%. Now, and then let's see, white evangelical Christians getting close to, to 80%. White men, no college, about 75, 76%. So that by that right there, and then rural 75% as well. Um, and if you look at the uh, big city voters, they're down at 67%. Annual income 50 grand or less, just a, just shy of 60%. Black voters, 58%, I think. Gen Z and millennials, who would have been the prime beneficiaries of that policy, 52%. Yeah. The, 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 the enthusiasm gap there from that, like from the two broad churches there, it's just night and day. If what you were doing was punting a pile of money to get the Gen Zs fired up to vote for you, hasn't worked. So, moving on from the the issues of the election, I just wanted to talk about the the Republicans in general. So, uh, it's been almost two years now since the the Capitol riots, and it seemed as if yeah we were the party was was going to try and break away from from Trump. Uh, they've got rid of the man Trump. But have they got rid of Trumpism, is my question to you. Well, I quibble with your first point, because is Trump truly gone? Well, he could be back on Twitter any day now. <laughs> um, he's the great looming shadow that is still cast over the party. Um, but It'd be a moneymaker for Mr. Elon if he's back on Twitter. <laughs> but... Um, I don't like the short answer to the question is, is I don't think that Trumpism is gone. Um, and like, I think you can even demonstrate this with the um, like the ongoing war for the, the soul of the Conservative Party, as someone like Jonah Goldberg or someone from the dispatch might put it um, in looking at like the, um, the 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 the. the the pro-Trump endorsements and the non-Trump endorsements, like it's overwhelming that a Trump endorsement was more useful for you than like not. Um, now you could make an argument that Trump will only really back someone, A, if he thinks there's a good chance that this candidate's gonna win anyway, in which case he looks great, or B, if it's in a situation or a race where, you know, even if he loses, who cares? You know, like if he endorses someone for governor of uh, California, like. Who cares? Like maybe maybe they outperform by three to four percent or something like that. And he says, "See, only I could fix." But um, if you look at and I just I, I when I when I was looking at this, um, if you look at the people who voted for his impeachment, this is a, this is astonishing, right? 
of the 10 Republicans who voted to impeach, four, uh, apart from the four who retired, and I reckon that they jumped before they were pushed. You have Liz Cheney, lost. Uh, Butler, lost. Mitch, lost. Wash, survived. Tom Rice, lost. And only one of those um, had no primary. So two out of those 10 are still around. And you reckon that four out of those 10 retired before they could be unceremoniously beheaded. Um, so is Trump gone? I mean, uh, I don't think so. <laughs> I, I know, the, uh, know the commentary I'd like to threat about the... Uh the Trump party, which proves that it, the Republicans aren't going in the right direction. Uh, all the legacy media signs off their pieces on, on the sort of the America first candidates as those who are a threat to democracy. And uh, well, they're clearly worried, of course, because these candidates easily triumphed in the primaries. And the primaries are, of course, by registered Republican voters themselves. What Trump did in 2016 or 2015 when the nominations were underway was just perform an absolute sea change with the Republican Party. The establishment candidates, you know, Rubio, Cruz, vanquished. And uh, with... Yeah, go on. And sort of with that coalition came less one fixated on a free trade to one of protectionism and more focused on a borders and uh, indeed social issues, a sort of the, the political rec political correctness, for example. And that, that's where the Republican Party are now. And that's where its voters are. And, and that's why um, in, in the 2020 um, election, whether fraudulent or not, um, Trump was able to sort of keep a decent hold on, on the Rust Belt. He, he kept Ohio. Yes, yes, he lost Pennsylvania, Michigan and, and, and the rest. But those are the voters that the Republican Party must now court. I, I think it's interesting, you know, because even though people say that you know, like he's unpopular. He's still, he's the man who the second most people voted for in American history. And the actual, gone for a week more. <laughs> yeah. If, 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 if you look at even those states he lost, they were razor thin my, my, my majorities for oh. like, it, it, it's 60,000 votes that was separating it. And that was at a time when you could say the fever pitch around Donald Trump was at an all-time high. You know, everyone was pushing for, he'd been impeached twice. It's like, you know, an, an unacceptable threat to democracy. But if, um, it, it, I, I, don't, I don't think that you can really consider that, if, if, it's as someone has said, it's like, if, 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 a, if an election is a referendum on you, you're in trouble. And I don't think that the next election for president will be a referendum on Trump if it is Trump in the in the driver's seat for the GOP. It'll be a referendum on the Biden administration. Could be wrong, but I'd be running scared now. And this is where I think, you know, it's going to be very important to pay attention to which states um, return what type of senators, because you can imagine a situation where Georgia, maybe Pennsylvania, certainly mm -hmm. Ohio, certainly Florida, maybe Arizona. These are all states that Biden has to win in order to win or to return as president or the Democrats have to win to return a presidential candidate. Um, so we'll see what happens. Can we compare the Republicans currently right now to, to the conservatives in, in Britain in the sense that we have this sort of division between what we would call the red wall or MPs and the more 
traditional free marketeers uh, that we saw in the, the precedent uh, uh, decades. So, for example, we have some people who would rather more public spending, possibly more protectionist, a little bit more nationalist, patriotic, against your sort of typical what we'd call the men in grey suits who get the business done. They don't spook the markets. They're more pro-free trade. Is it comparable, the situation across the pond? To an extent, and I'd like to get Luke's thoughts on this, because I guess America is much more religious than the UK is as a whole. So there's a part of the like the, the, the GOP um, that is made up of um, you know, evangelists or, you know, uh, people who are extremely religious, like for, much more religious than even, I guess, the religious people or, you know, like the, the mainline religious belief level that you would see in a UK um, selection of like 100 voters, you know, they, and they, they're much more hard line. But there are some things that you can take away, like ultimately Brexit and Trump as Luke has alluded to, um, were a realignment for the views of both parties on things like trade and immigration. Um, I think the one place that you could, the, the reason why you could say that the GOP transformation into a more um, red waller, for lack of a better word, or Rust Belt GOP has been more successful is because they run an open primary system in many mm. cases. So as a result, there isn't, quite the same capacity for conservative party hq to get in and like they still do put their thumbs on the scales in these races but ultimately if enough of the voters really can't stand them like enough registered republicans will be able to change who their candidate is whether it's two four or six years down the line the difference i would say between the conservative party of now and the uh, republican party of now is that the conservative party has remained in its establishment form largely because mm. as you say pangolins it's the primary system i mean i know my local mp was as a uh, ramona that never lived in the constituency before he uh, ran to be its representative so that, that that's the sort of situation we are facing in the uk and of course the uk does have um big political instability with recurring prime ministers and whatnot but the uh, the republic the uh, the vote for boris was largely just they wanted a change of policy they, they wanted to get brexit done they wanted to level up the country so the policy is drifting away from a london-centric model to a uh, to the rest of the rest of the nation the republicans with trump it was that change in policy regarding these issues of trade and immigration but it was also fueled largely by a very low trust in um, societal institutions that is why what one of the slogans that brought trump to power was drain the swamp mm. there, there was yeah. you know, lock hillary up it, it was just a complete protest against the washington establishment and you'd see polls now where um it, it's almost like a hockey stick in terms of the democrats going up in the trust of institutions and mm. the republicans just it's it's in free fall that their trust in the, the mainstream media, FBI, what what have you, it's in single the markets. Yeah, the markets. So that's why someone like like a strongman like Trump can easily ride the wave of popularity because there is this deep discontent in America that yeah. the Washington insiders or whomever do not represent me and they actively hate me. And now they've just locked me in my home for two years. Oh no. I think I think that that's that's a very important point that like 
the, I, I think if you wanted to say the thing that the Conservative Party voters of 2019 and the Trump voters of 2016 share uh, is that they think that the current model isn't working. And they will take absolutely, and, and they think that it's not working on broadly the same lines. Like they think that they, you know, their, their institutions don't look after them. They don't really care about them. They're not controlling the borders. You know, they're, they're probably much more skeptical about globalized trade, certainly about globalism in general. And so, you know, if you wanted to make the comparison, I would say between the two voter bases that there are very strong similarities, which is why you can see the Rust Belt and, you know, uh, the deindustrialized heartlands of the UK going towards these types of figures that are skeptical of globalization and skeptical of uh, open borders, etc. So from that perspective, I think that there is a comparison between the parties. I think as we've discussed, the Conservative Party is, as Luke alluded to, much more parachutist, much more elitist, much more institutionally capable of keeping it that way. And let's flip from uh, red to blue then. So Biden's first two years in office, uh, we talked earlier about how him losing the two houses would essentially derail his legislative agenda. But he's had the majority in both houses, although a very, very slim one in the Senate, 50-50, but Kamala Harris as the deciding vote. Um, what has he been able to achieve and what is he going to miss out on in his final two years if he loses the two houses? I suppose it depends on who you ask. If you ask Biden, he would say that he gave the Inflation Reduction Act, which you know poured <laughs> a bunch of fiscal stimulus onto an already hot economy. Um, Kind of reminds me, I don't know if there's an episode of The Simpsons where they're all trapped in a hole and Mo Sislak turns to Homer's, no dig up, stupid. Um, <laughs> kind of feels a bit like that with the Inflation Reduction Act. I think there is one thing I would say is actually quite impactful um, that Biden has been able to get across the line. Because, I mean, mostly it has been mass amounts of large scale spending um, in multiple budgets that are aimed at coronavirus and you know now you've got infrastructure you got a very large infrastructure bill passed um you know which should have been an open you know slam dunk for anyone who proposed an infrastructure bill like uh, from what i've heard like if our infrastructure is bad most of america's infrastructure is worse um but one thing that i think he did get that will be very impactful down the road is the chips act which is its aim is to make it much more difficult for people to um, produce these types of high-end chips if the companies or the factories are in China, which, you know, that, that's a borderline Trumpian thing to have yeah, done, yeah. one might have said. Um, but as to what he's going to miss out on, Green New Deal is effectively dead. Um, Wide-scale, um, beyond what he can do with executive order, um, wide-scale student loan amnesties, not going to happen. Um, then I guess the open question is whether or not he will be able to continue putting much funding towards the Ukrainian government or, you know, potentially even things in Taiwan if they're going to be paying, much, if, the, if a Republican-controlled House or Senate might be paying much more attention to the, the, the actual light, line item expenditure being sent here. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what shakes out. Well, I think that what he has been able to achieve is primarily a lot of debt and a lot of spending. 
and at least one very Trumpian act of legislation. Um, but if he loses, nothing else gets done other than by executive order. Sorry, go on, Luke. There is nothing more much accomplished with executive order, not with the, the political leanings of the branch at present. But I, I think the, the, the biggest sort of dog's breakfast pile of the, the, the first two Biden years is American standing on the global stage. They ran away from Afghanistan with the tails between their legs. Putin still invaded Ukraine and the US is, is still largely propping up the uh, Ukrainian military for how long that will last under a supposed Republican house remains to be seen. And um, But Putin's sort of confidence to invade Ukraine has also uh, given China a bit of air in their sails as well. Now, when Pelosi made her trip to, uh, to Taiwan as, as a show of, of power, China decided to infiltrate Ch Taiwanese waters. So I, th I think the, um, the well, you might be seeing whether Taiwan will still be an, an independent sovereign nation come 2024. But what should be terrifying Americans of both blue or red with it being pushed back on the international stage is America's economy is basically on the strength of its military because it because claims to defend all these nations, which it in turn props up the the reputation dollar, I should say. And there's also the petrol dollar, where uh, the US basically commands countries, such as in the Gulf states, that you must trade oil on an international market with dollars. Saudi Arabia is on the verge of ducking out of that by selling oil to uh, China and Russia. And uh, that will cause the, the dollar's value to go into free fall and inflation will, <laughs> thought it was bad now. And um, I cannot see, and say so the president is executive. Biden will be president for another two years uh, unless he dies or is removed. I cannot see how we can improve this situation. The American military is too it's too castrated, and China and, and Russia are pulling their cards, and they've seen how weak and frail the declining American empire is. I think it's important what you say when you talk about the declining um, status of America. That was an oft-touted feature of the Trump presidency. You know, like this is the adults back in the room now that the Bidens mm. are here. But you, you're you're right to say. I mean, the rights or wrongs of the Afghanistan occupation didn't look good the way they exited. Um, and I think even Biden was saying that, you know, a minor incursion into Ukraine might result in too many bad things happening to Russia, et cetera, et cetera. Like the signaling's been all over the place. Um, and I don't think it's been in America's, um, it, it, I don't think it's improved its international reputation. Let's put it that way. I think Luke's absolutely right about that. Um, in which case, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a person who tries to read the future, but you know, if I was, I was a Taiwanese person right now. I'd be, I'd be a little bit more frightened today. Well, they're, they're training in basements with handguns, so yeah. Uh, just because you've mentioned uh, decline in American status, uh, I'll do a little bit of advertising for Bornbrook because uh, Collingwood has written an excellent piece, uh, a short story uh, looking at the U.S. in two thousand forty-nine. Um, as a country that has lost its status as the global power and uh, the consequences that come with that. So highly recommended on Hornbrook's website. Uh, just before we move on to the races themselves, what are Biden's approval ratings looking like at the moment coming into these elections? 
I can give you them all by issue. Um, and they are not good, is the short answer. Um, now, there, at one point, Biden did actually drop below Donald Trump's approval rating for the same time in his presidency. He has managed to steady the waters now, and he's a mighty 1% or something higher than Donald Trump at the same point in his presidency. But 42 to 43% top-line job approval on the economy, 38% approval to 58% disapproval. Foreign policy, which we've just touched on, 41% approval to 53% disapproval. Immigration, 35% approval to 60% disapproval. Inflation, 34% approval to 61% approval. Crime, 38 to 56. Russia, Ukraine, he's underwater by five points with 44 to 49. And as Luke touched on earlier, he's above water in one issue, and that is the coronavirus, where he is up five. Those numbers are dreadful across the board. In some of these key issues, like immigration, he is 24 points underwater. For, his, for the economy, he's 20 points underwater. Bad time. Bad, bad time. And have we seen this reflected in the campaigning? Are people trying to uh, detach themselves from Biden, Democrat candidates, I mean? Well, you, you do see them running their own campaigns. Now, that's not unusual for the Senate. What I have found interesting is who they have trotted out. You see in some of these key swing states that are, they've actually not opted to have Biden campaign for them, but they've had Obama come out for them, which mm. I think is quite interesting. I think in quite a lot of these cases, um, if, if this was a president who was on 60% approval or something like that, you know, approval across the board, a lot of these House candidates or these Senate candidates or these governor candidates would be clutching themselves on to Joe Biden to, so that his coattails could, you know, bring them up. But at the moment, it looks like the complete opposite is happening. Many of these, um, many of these candidates don't want him anywhere near <laughs> their race. And any time, I'd say that there is at least a cognizance uh, or there's a cognizance among many of these candidates that it would be better if he just stayed away, which really is quite an astonishing thing. The DNA of America's political system does help these candidates out an, an awful lot because, of course, America was a federal system and it, it was envisaged that way. Number one, because of its geographic size and number two, as just another check and balance. And what that allows is politicians to at least appear to care more about the candidate, the, the voters in their state or constituency than say the presidency. I mean, that's less so in the sort of combined legislative executive roles we have in the UK. And um, so that's also why um, you have the establishment Republic Republicans who have nothing in common with the, the America first Republicans. And luckily you have the primaries who decide who tops that. And the Democrats ha have uh, the same problem. I'm sure there's a lot of Democratic voters who are very unhappy with Biden at, at present. And that allows the sort of the voters and the politicians to come on a common ground where they don't openly say that they'd rather have someone else than Biden. So it does allow them to uh, appeal to sort of their own issues. And of course, a lot of pork barreling in there or, or a lot of pork barreling. So let's dive into the races themselves. Let, let's start with the Senate. So uh, as we've seen with the 
the constituencies, the states. We have a lot of safe states, which we don't really care about the result because we already know the result. Yes, the funniest things can be what one of two things. Number one, it just goes uncontested and boom, job for life. Number two, if it's in a really, really safe seat or state, you have two members of the same party running against each other, which is why it's not uncommon in uber liberal urban California to have three Democrats facing off. <laughs> That's interestingly happening in what may be the deepest red state of them all in Utah. You have uh, the... Uh, Republican Mike Lee running against uh, independent Evan McMullen, who's a profound anti-Trumper. And I think the interesting thing for that race is that how important the um, the, the the Mormon the, the, the Mormon Church or the the Mormon faith of both the candidates is playing into that. And one of the complaints for Mike Lee is, well, Mitt Romney, where's your endorsement of me? Come on, it should be an easy choice for you. Um, but we do have uh, about 10 or 11 possible close swing states. Uh, so what are some of those? What, what are going to be the key battlegrounds to winning the Senate in this election? So if we want to run through them really quick, like at the moment, they, uh, the, the GOP have 50 seats. So that means that they're going to need, like there's 48 safe or lean GOP seats right now, which would be you know, now inclusive of Ohio. Um, so they're going to need to hold on to Wisconsin because they already have it. Um, they're going to need to get Ohio. They're going to need, and then they're going to need to win what two more states there. And the states where they're looking like that are toss-ups at the moment, Nevada, Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and now increasingly New Hampshire as well. So those are where I think are gonna be the most important ones. Um, the GOP are looking, I think, strong in Nevada. They're looking reasonably strong in Georgia and in Ohio, Wisconsin. Pennsylvania is an interesting one because I think they're not actually strong there, but the candidate of the Democrat party has recently had a stroke and so he is even less capable of human speech than joe biden is um i think he opened up his recent debate with uh hello everybody and good night um before being incapable of making much of the sentence throughout so it's interesting it's, that uh, it reminds me of that uh, simpsons episode when uh homer simpson uh, he's running against that guy and he spends the, the whole debate calling him an old man and saying, oh, you're confused about what you're saying. The guy's only like a year or two older than him. It's uh, yeah, great. <laughs> but if we want to look at those for the top line, or like if we want to take the polling average for those, Wisconsin Republicans are up by 3%. So you'd have to imagine that that's, that's enough. Pennsylvania, neck and neck. I think the, the Republican has taken over by a fractional amount, 0.3% is what he's up in the RCP polling average, but that's still up. So, you know, you'd, you'd prefer that than not. Um, Arizona, the GOP are up. Um, New Hampshire, the Democrats are still up, but it's only half a point. Um, and there's no early voting in New Hampshire. So all of that's going to be decided on the day which is interesting. Georgia yeah, Senate. Uh, because you, you've alluded to it, uh, there are some states that have decided to introduce early voting and not just online voting, but you can actually physically go 
to the polling station and vote days, sometimes weeks in advance. How, how was that playing out at the moment? So I, I've seen some conflicting figures on this, but it looks like from where they are for other, you know, early voter postal votes, the Democrats are not where they would like to be in a key area in a number of key places. But it is true that a lot of places already, I think it's something like uh, half a million people in Pennsylvania have already voted before any election day takes place. So that, it could be wrong in the, those exact figures, but you have to imagine that, and I'm sure if either of you disagree with me, let me know, but I think that the early voting really only matters if you're a vote blue, no matter who, or a vote red, no matter what kind of person, because you'll mm. just be like, boom, straight in. I don't imagine very many people make up their minds weeks in advance, you know? I'm sure there are quite a lot of floating voters out there who might be like, weighing their options right up to the final week or day. Luke, are there any races that have caught your eyes in the Senate this year? Not, not in particular. I'm looking at it as, a, as the coalition of uh, the states that Biden took in 2020 and which ones will remain and which ones will fall. Because if it's a total wipeout, that does spell incredibly bad news for the Democrats. If it's only one or two, then um, 2024 may look slightly better, of course. That's that's worlds away at, at this point. As I say, when you look at the House, there are plenty of interesting races there, but again, it, it's a binary. You've got to look at the absolute numbers on whether the Republicans can seize a majority of the, the House or not. What's been interesting in the last couple of days, you know, their last minute spending, there are some seats in the House that are getting a lot of money from the Democratic mm -hmm. Party headquarters. That would surprise you. There are a couple of Biden plus 12 seats that they are pouring money into at the moment. And if their internal polling is giving them enough pause that a Biden plus 12 seat is in danger, that spells an extremely bad night for the Democrats. Yeah, I do think we'll, ha we'll have a lot of very un unexpected results. Politico and Gallup will we'll, we'll look at all these, you know, expected seats, be, be it, you know, R plus 15 in Florida that's been flipping blue and red for the past 10 odd years. But I think we'll see some Democrat seats completely out of the blue that just flip. And you would not have predicted that ever. There's One even been... Sorry, there's even been rumours that uh, Washington could possibly turn red. For me, that would be sort of the equivalent of uh, Labour taking Westminster at the, the local elections. It's the, the high mark, really, high watermark for the Republicans. But uh, for that even to be in sort of a toss-up position is, is, is really quite incredible of what, what could happen. Well, I think on election night, the Democrats will have their Blythe Valley moment very on. And that would just, yes, that, I, that, that would just set the scene. I it's think so much control it's, from that point onwards. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that what people should be paying attention on is how the, uh, the race is in. Because the, the, the states that are going to set the tone for the rest of the night are the ones that are going to be reporting early. New Hampshire, Virginia, New York, Florida, Georgia, these are all going to be the first states that actually report their results. So if there, I think, I think that I saw a GOP pollster saying that they've got three bellwether state or three bellwether districts in Virginia. One of them is a DNC plus two, one's DNC plus five, and another one's DNC plus seven. 
They say, if the two goes, okay night. If five goes, good night. If the 10 goes, great night. Because it lights out at that point. And uh, one race which has particularly caught my eye, apart from maybe Pennsylvania with uh, Fetterman's uh, heart attack, is uh, Georgia, where it seems to be the battle between two very interesting uh, candidates between uh, Pastor Raphael Warnock and uh, former footballer Herschel Walker. Um, have you read anything about that, uh, Pangolin? I've, uh, I mean, from what I understand, that Herschel Walker's been embroiled in an abortion scandal. And I know that Raphael Warnock appears to have, from his, as his own skeletons in the closet. Um, so it's interesting that you've got two, in a lot of these races, what you seem to have is two incredibly weak candidates, like incredibly mm. weak candidates. But I mean, the joke for Herschel Walker is, is that like, many of his voter base might be genetically related to him because of all of his uh, illegitimate children, you know? Um, but I, 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 like, as far as it goes, I think that that's going to be one of the truest examples of where people's minds are with regards to the two parties. Because you've got, to, there in Pennsylvania, you will have a situation where you've got, potentially as a voter, two candidates, neither of which you want to vote for, so are you going to pick the party? You know, like I, someone, I think some, someone on Twitter said, well, it doesn't really matter if Fetterman has had a stroke, you know, he, he just needs to vote the right way. And I wonder how much of that logic is, uh, is going to be in the minds of voters as they go out, um, go out on, you know, the, on, on next Tuesday. I think in, um, in, uh, Georgia, they have a rule where uh, you have to reach 50% uh, in order to avoid a, a runoff. So it's probably likely that that will go to a runoff and uh, be decided in uh, in January. But I yeah. think, as you, you touched upon the weakness of the candidates, I think that is a weakness of the primary system in, in the States where normally turnout is very low for primaries and that sort of spells that it's really political activists mostly who are going out to vote in, in primaries and, and that's where you're getting these sort of wacky characters uh, uh, who are making it to the to the actual elections. We have our own example don't we? I mean we have Liv Liz Truss who was effectively chosen because she was the, we have to remember if you're a member of a party you're already a self-selecting politically interest you're 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 probably far a more nerd. akin yeah or, or even an ideologue self-selecting <laughs> members of the democrats or the gop or labor or the tories are probably much more politically interested than average and probably have views that are either that are out of the ordinary with regards to the wider public you know um so well, I, I certainly, I certainly rule in british politics is you don't let the youth pick your party leaders because yeah. they're always, you know, undeveloped prefrontal cortex. You're always going to be much more radical than what the voters would vote for, be it left or right. Well, I think we have to give some, uh, cre we, we have to give some of a battering to the to the Tories because they let the boomers choose Liz Trust, and she was absolutely <laughs> dreadful. And but, moving you know, away, moving so away from the Senate, uh, have you seen any other interesting races, whether it be 
governorship so, or the house? So there, I haven't been following the house as much because I think mm. broadly speaking, that's just going to be pick your party. So, I mean, there might be some races that buck that trend, but I think less so. The house, or sorry, the, the, the governorships have been, I think, very interesting. Um, you had uh, you have Ron DeSantis now commandingly ahead. Like Ron DeSantis only won by a handful of votes. A thousand. Now it's like, yeah, like a couple of thousand. And now he might be 10, 11% above his, his opposition candidate in, in Florida. Um, New York, um, I think this is the pocket pick I have said that is the one to watch. I think that there is at least a, there is a not in, that I think that race will be much, much closer than people think it is. Um, I think that Katie Hochul versus Lee Zeldin in New York will be much closer than people let on. I think you could see some real surprises with uh, with regards to the governor mansions that come through. I mean, uh, you have um, Governor Kemp, the, uh, the 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 returning or potentially the returning governor of Georgia. He is now commandingly ahead of Stacey Abrams, like five, six. Some even seeing him in double digits ahead of Stacey Abrams. What's going to be interesting is is that in these places where the governor candidate, and I'm thinking in particular um, uh, the 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 Arizona uh, Carrie Lake, I think is her name. Mm-hmm. Um, she's outperforming, and Brian Kemp is outperforming, and Ron DeSantis is outperforming. Will those bring some wind to the sails to the Senate candidates or the House candidates behind them? And I think it remains to be seen as to whether or not it will, but it could. Um, You're also looking at a very interesting situation in Oregon, where because Mm. there are three plausible candidates, you might have a you might have a Republican governor of Oregon for the first time. in I don't know how long might be might be 50 or 60 years. So a lot of interesting things could be happening in the governor mansion. That's 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 for sure. Luke, anything to add to that? As I say, I haven't been looking any of the the races closely. I've been looking at the um the, the Stacey Abrams rematch, and yeah, that's the, all. These races are exactly as I was expected. It's going to be a, a referendum on the incumbent with low turnout, indicating that it's going to be the uh, the aggrieved people who turn out to vote, and um, yeah, it, again, it's a numbers game. How many will fall? So let let's have some predictions. So. Are we all in agreement that uh, the Republicans are going to win both houses? I think that is certainly where I'm leaning. Um, I think that the Republicans, on a very good night, on like a, this would be their best night, could have 54 senators. But I think it'll likely be 52, 53. Um, and I think that they're going to win. Like they're, 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 they're already by polling at 222 seats, which is more than they need. I think it'll, I, I think they'll, they'll win 30 or 40, maybe, maybe as high as 40, but I think it'll be between 30 and 40. Um, yeah, that, that, that'd be where I'm, I'm leaning. I think it's, I think it's going to be a very bad night for the Democrats in both houses. And, and if you were to uh, have a little double on individual races, what races could be a, a big surprise uh, which could return a nice little lump sum. Well, the one I already mentioned, the the the, the New York uh, race um, between Lee Zeldin and Kathy Hochul, 
Um, I think if you wanted to maybe put, like if you wanted to throw a cheeky fiber on uh, the New Hampshire Senate race, you know, it's only half a point in it and the momentum's going Republican, but I think the, the Democrats still favored. So you might be able to get some. Now, one who I think could surprise everyone could be Blake Masters in Arizona. Um, he's polling neck and neck with the incumbent Mark Kelly, but I think he could be nudged over the line if Carrie Lake does extremely well. So I think those would be the places I'd look for if you were looking to make some, um, some, if you're looking for the places where I think you're going to get decent odds. Like at this point, many of the races are already pretty much decided. Mm -hmm. You're not going to get any good odds on Ron DeSantis winning Florida, for example. So you, you, you're not going to get any return on mm -hmm. that. But those would be a couple I think that you could make some decent return on. So just before we finish, uh, I want to look ahead to 2024. Uh, you've already mentioned Ron DeSantis. Uh, he's a name that's on everybody's lips on the, at the moment. Could anybody apart from him challenge Donald Trump to the leadership of the Republican or candidacy of the Republican? So it's a very good question. Can I, I think that, that the broader question is, can anyone challenge Trump? And I, I, I don't. Yeah, honestly, I'm I of the know. opinion as well that the red carpet is sort of already rolled out for the Donald. It is, as we established previously on this podcast, his party now. The yeah. American first candidates are did win their primaries comfortably and will likely win their uh, election showdowns comfortably as well. Ron DeSantis is the only one who could likely challenge, but I do think Ron DeSantis would prefer to stay in the state of Florida and just prove himself to be a model for red state governance but apart from that the republican field is completely empty mm. Ma I mean, many of course establishment republicans the republican electorate will not trust mitt romney can't for instance if you want to have an interesting look this is the poll average for the republican candidates donald trump at 54 percent. that's a commanding lead that means he's already starting out with over majority but who's number two ron DeSantis at 25 percent and then you fall into fantasy land. Mike Pence at 8% or Liz Bloody Cheney at 2.3%. Sorry, that is never going to happen in a million bloody years. Uh, like, I've been, yeah, I've been seeing on. the media just, just do the top 10. And uh, Tim Scott's name has been popping up quite a bit as well. But again, his, his figures are in fantasy land below, below 10%. So the candidates below Trump and DeSantis, it's just you may as well have Tucker Carlson in third place. There's just, there's, <laughs> just, there's just no politician who can just command that enthusiasm or that respect or that competency than certainly DeSantis and Trump have. And, and look at Donald Trump's record for dismantling political dynasties. He has in one term of office destroyed the Clinton dynasty, the Bush dynasty and the Cheney dynasty. I wouldn't if you were a, if you were an ambitious GOP GOP person who wants to be president someday, why would you get in that field? Because he's just going to drag you into the mud and he's going to beat you there. Like, look at what happened to Rubio, completely destroyed by it. Never going to be a prospect again. So I think I, I think Ted Cruz as well. Yeah, Ted Cruz. I think Cruz I think, completely I think forgotten. Yeah, I think Trump is the de facto nominee should he choose to run barring something with his help or you know like him actually getting arrested or assassinated i don't see how he can be beat as it presently stands i could end up being wrong could be a very ugly race 
but at the moment, <laughs> I, I I would put my thought I would put my uh, I would put my guess on the Donald being back in the uh, GOPC by 2024. I think the only thing uh, people remember Ted Cruz by now is uh, that cow made of butter, which he, he posted on Twitter. Um, so if if the Donald is making his return, who will be his opponent? Surely not Joe Biden again. Surely he can't. I don't know that they've got anyone else like that. You know, if we're talking about, you know, as Luke was saying, if the, if the, if the GOP have a bare, a bare bench, what does the Democrats look like at the moment? Like I'm looking at some of these prospective candidates and I have not heard of them. Like it, you've like, I've, I've got this poll average, the same kind of poll average we had for the GOP. Biden's on 39%. So he is the, defa- like he is ahead, but You've got Kamala Harris at 20%, Michelle Obama at 15%, Hillary Clinton at 10%, Pete Buttigieg at 10%, Gavin Bloody Newsom of California at 5%. It's a very, very fractured field, but I don't think there's anyone on that list who would, who would, who would, you know, drive people to the polls, you know? Yeah, the, the, the Republicans have an empty field. The Democrats have a very unpopular one. Because yeah. I, I know when the, the nominations began for their, um, for the ones Biden won, there was about 25 of them which started off. And the one person in that line of people was Bill de Blasio, who I think was made himself unpopular in New York, let alone the country. And uh, I think Biden won't... But Biden won't throw in the towel, and I don't think the Democrats would even want him to, because if he steps down, that's just an indication that the Democratic Party is weak, that it's divided, and that and there'll be blood in the water for the Republicans to attack. I mean, this happened with President Lyndon B. Johnson, just didn't bother running for president again, and that was a very bad red light for the Democrats. So that won't happen. Biden will have to die in office. And then you have a really unpopular girl boss, Kamala Harris, president. So, the the woman who couldn't even win in her own home state, yeah, dropped out in the face of Bernie Sanders, could not yeah, win. Yeah, Kamala. Yeah, because people seem to forget this. Kamala Harris was one of the first fallen of the Democrat yeah. field. Yeah, under one percent. Like I think maybe it wasn't as bad as that, but it, it wasn't much better than one to five percent of the Democrat Party she could convince to vote for. So yeah. you know, I I I think Luke's right though. I think that if I think that if they have to strap him to a gurney and pump him full of adrenochrome and cocaine and like weekend at Bernie's Biden for as long as humanly possible, that's what they'll do. Because there is no one else out there who's going who's gonna to magically reverse their fortunes. Not that I can see anyway. But we'll have to uh, recycle the, the Prince Philip joke when somebody asked him, uh, <laughs> said, uh, sorry to see you standing down. He said, uh, standing down, I can barely stand up. <laughs> will be appropriate for the second Biden administration. But if you look at that, then that means the two people who are going to be facing into it will both be the oldest candidates for president in American history. Both of them. It's 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 quite a thing that the 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 the, the young up and coming republic can't get someone who isn't a septuagenarian as a candidate for president. Like, is there no one below the age of seventy? I'm just a little bit uh, sad that we won't see a return of uh, Tulsi Gabbard in the in the Democrat primaries. Uh, well, maybe she'll run as an independent. 
it'll be nice or uh, maybe a switch to the Republicans there, I say. Maybe she'll be uh, Donald Trump's VP candidate. Wouldn't <laughs> that be funny? Well, yeah. <laughs> well, oh. I think uh, we've said all that's needed to say and uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, so uh, thank you to both of you for, for coming on today. Thanks both and uh, thank you for having me, Julian. Uh, happily do it, do it again anytime. Yes, and Julian, thank you for having me two weeks running. Uh, I know me and you will certainly be uh, on the phones over the night, over Tuesday night, watching the results roll in. With uh, a can of Stella to, yes, to toot on. Yeah. The only way. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the next two episodes will most likely be the Chester by-election and uh, Pangolins, you might be returning sooner than you think as... Uh, your beloved Northern Ireland seems to be heading to the polls once again. Oh, don't depress me. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sure we'll have a great uh, catch-up. Uh, although I'm, uh, we could probably just put out the fir- the original podcast we did. Because it's <laughs> it's going to be the same debate. So. You might be able to. Well, I assume yeah, at some point we'll have the Irish elections to look forward to. With uh, but you know we'll save that for another time if you get an, <laughs> if you get a hankering for it. <laughs> Okay, so thanks to all our listeners again for tuning in and uh, we shall see you soon on The Political Tipster. Bye-bye.